All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Isaac. Um, if you don't know me, I'd love to meet you. If you are new or you're a guest here, even if you've been here for a few times and you haven't said hello, please come up and chat with me. We are in a big, giant 21-week series going through the entirety of the Bible, and today we're kind of in the opening pages of the life of Jesus. But before we do that, I want to do something that we typically do around December, and that's um, review sort of the last 12 months and some of our accomplishments, and then um, give out a description of what is our year-end goal um, and what we'd like to accomplish. So I'm going to do that succinctly, quickly, because we have a lot of um, cool stuff to talk about today. I- I'll give you a hint. I brought in a big, giant sword. Um, it's, it's hidden. Um, I ha- it's just, I mean, honestly, it kind of sounds funny, but it's sad. When you're walking into a church room with a big, giant weapon, you're... you're, you're you're kind of looking around, especially if you're a dude that looks like me, man. People are suspicious. So with, with much work, I was able to bring a sermon illustration here today before you. So, but before we do that, uh, this, is, these, this year has been absolutely incredible. And I don't just, just say that. For those of you who, who know me, I'm not a hype guy. I don't like blow things up. But the last 12 months have been um, incredible. And I just want to briefly highlight some of the things Um, there's so many things we can't talk about, we don't have time for, and there's people like, oh, you should have mentioned this. It's like when you get an award at the Grammys. You know, sometimes you just gotta thank a few people and then say, hey, the rest, you know who you are. So please, there's tons of things I wanna talk about, but just some highlights that have been accomplished in the last 12 years. Um, 12 uh, 12 months, sorry. You know, at an elder meeting, I kept saying 12 years as well. So you know when you learn, I'm now at the age, it's the second child who's a few weeks old, where if you said something wrong the first time, no matter how many times you're corrected, you will eternally, for all time, say it wrong. And it, it gets bad when it starts with its names. It's like, Dad, I'm Bob. I'm not Tim. There's three years apart. So uh, first thing, last 12 months, uh, this is a picture in Haiti with our mission team. We opened New Life for the Children Orphanage this year. And those are the pictures, that, that's a picture of the 26... Um, orphans who now have food, shelter, and are getting education and biblical teaching. Now that is done primarily by, by the people on the ground over there, but a big part of that is done because of the time, resources, and frankly money that we send to, to that ministry. So you got to just slow down. I, I mean, if it was just this, 26 children made in the image of God who have already experienced a world of hurt now have people caring for them, feeding them, giving them shelter, providing for them all the resources that they need, not just food, not just education, not just the Bible, all of it. This is a massive accomplishment and New Life for the Children in Haiti was opened this year. By the way, when when tragedy strikes like it did in Haiti several years back, it's all hype, everyone's giving money to it for about six months, but that dries up really quick. And, And what you need to know is that Christians were, before, were there before the tragedy hit, and they're the ones who are, who are still there because it's not just about um, an opportune moment. It's about giving your life in order to give these children's, uh, children a better life. So huge, massive accomplishment. By God's grace, Hope of the Nations in Tanzania. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Hope of the Nations in Tanzania opened uh, their school, which is giving very similar food, education, and biblical teaching to, to many, many children. Here's a pic- this is a picture of our team. It's hard to see. It's zoomed out. Um, 
but if you find like five white people in that picture, those are our, some of our teammates. And I say that because like Sam Whitaker is super tall, so he stands above everybody and he's bald. So usually the sun's reflecting off that. So if you see like this angelic six foot five bean, that's Sam Whitaker in the pictures. Uh, and the rest are some of the children participating. This is a picture of some of the stuff we're doing locally. Uh, absolutely. We did Compassion Sunday. We did Beautiful Day. Um, we're serving in all kinds of different areas in the local community. Once a month, people from this church get together and feed the homeless in partnership with the Compassion Center. This is uh, hard to see, but this is actually our stage. And Janine Carini, who was just up, her, she and her team for Family Ministries made this just snow mountain for vacation Bible school program called Everest. And, and Family Ministries are knocking it out of the park right now. From Awanas having record attendance to Vacation Bible School, having kids from the community come to these types of events. Here's a picture a, a few Sundays ago. This is like the best problem to have. A few Sundays ago, um, in just in the nursery for a 9 a.m. service, little, ki- little nursery kids, they just kept coming. So we had two workers in there for the kids, but by the end of it, Carol Smith and my wife, Michelle, were pulled in as extra help because we actually had 11 plus students, uh, not students, uh, little babies in there. So we got a small room packed out with babies, which is great. It just means more and more young families are here uh, bringing their children to learn about Jesus. This is a picture of the sanctuary, uh, a little update for Centro Hispano. Um, if, if, if you're new here, we're a multi-site church, and so we have a campus in Hollister in downtown Gilroy, a Spanish-speaking one. Um, Centro Espana is now, um, on any given Sunday, having about 150 people come, which is great in and of itself, but more importantly, um, they have now branched out of, and this should be the goal of every church, out of themselves and see themselves as a ministry to the community and the area at large. And so they've put on two conferences this year, a leadership conference, and then this youth, leader, youth leadership conference. And that room is filled with high schoolers and college-age students, not just from Gilroy, Morgan Hill, San Jose. Because the lack of resources for Spanish-speaking evangelical youth, there's, there's, there's not much. So we had people from Oregon drive down for the event that Centro did. There was a youth group from Washington that came down. So awesome. Uh, this is, uh, just to keep you in the loop with Hollister, this is our biggest problem. Um, there's no more space. And so we did it. We're start, we started an evening service several months ago at 6 p.m. So as I say now, there's services in the morning, evening, English, and Spanish. There's no excuse. If, if there's a football game on, I'll see you at Centro in Spanish. Football game on, I'll see you in Hollister. Um, so it's just incredible to see what the Lord is doing. By God's grace at the Gilroy campus this last year, we, we started uh, several new ministries. One was Celebrate Recovery, ministering to people with um, hurts, habits, addictions, hangups. We started Young Adults, the branch this year. We, and this is something near, near and dear to my heart, started our first special needs ministry. We're starting off very small, taking baby steps. But for children and youth with special needs, we want to make sure that they and their families are ministered to here, that they know they're loved, they're welcome here, and they don't have to worry about any of the stuff that... Um, frankly, sometimes just makes it difficult to go see a movie or go on a date with, with your spouse. And so we want to do those things. Mop was started, the Bridge Compassion Store. Propel, um, it's leadership training for women. Propel met in this room yesterday. There was like 60 women here gathered in the morning. Raise your hand if you were here for that. I popped my head and it was absolutely incredible. So all of these things are just amazing. 
On top of that, um, our church as a whole, with all the, the campuses put together, in the last 12 months, that's my greatest accomplishment for the day, has experienced a 20% um, percent increase in attendance on Sunday morning. Now you need to understand, that, that's massive. A 20% increase for a church in 12 months. Um, and again, for those of you who know me personally, I'm not just about, oh wow, we have more people on Sunday morning or we're filling the pews more. There's a 20% increase in attendance, but people are digging into newly developed discipleship programs and classes. The small group curriculum has stepped it up. People are learning, people are digging in, people are getting involved. Um, I'm not certain because I have not reviewed all, every single ministry in every single department. But for the most part, nearly every ministry, department, event program has seen increase in growth in the last 12 months. Um, so with that, we have all kinds of cool things. People are getting involved. Our web, even our web traffic, um, we're, we're getting just under 1,000 unique hits. So that's not 1,000 hits on the web page. That's 1,000 different people, close to 1,000 different people, going to the website every week. Um, which means, and, and we're getting questions, um, Kevin and I, Kevin Kurzenabe, who's given announcements, getting questions from people outside the area about curriculums, about sermons. So again, we want to be a church and a resource, not just for our people, but for the, for the church at large. So with that, um, all of those accomplishments, here's the, here's the goal. Um, we we got to keep up. <laughs> We have to keep up with 20% increase in growth. And so um, I want you guys to know that we're doing well financially as a church. In fact, we, we, we're currently ahead of budget with giving. So thanks to the generosity of all of you in this room, we're doing great. We're not behind. Oftentimes at year end, most nonprofits and churches have to do a lot of makeup. They have to catch up um, because 25% of all giving to nonprofits and churches comes in the month of December. It's huge. It means a quarter of your budget has to come in in the month of December. We're currently doing well and we're strong, but I want you to know that we have a tremendous opportunity because of the growth. So although we're doing well, we need to expand, we need to grow, and we have a massive need to update our technological abilities and our facilities. And so with that, the big number for this year for December is we're looking to see about $120,000 above and beyond normal giving coming in the month of December to help us keep up with all the amazing things that are happening. And that $120,000 will help us um, continue what we're currently doing, but more importantly, get ready for all the amazing things that are happening. So my request of you is if, if you're married, Go home, talk to your spouse. How can we be more generous in this, this, this month and with the church? If you're single, maybe talk to a couple other people um, who you're accountable to. If you're not accountable to anyone, get in a small group. If you need help with that, talk to me or someone. Um, but seriously, go home, consider, think, and pray how you might um, go above and beyond what you usually do. And if, if you're just new here for the first time, as Kevin said, don't worry about it. But if you are starting to call this place home and you consider yourself a part of this church body and family, Family, um, and you haven't started giving, what we'd ask you to do is, is to start giving um, to make sure we're keeping up with all the amazing things God's doing. So uh, let me pray and thank God for the last 12 months, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father God, uh, absolutely incredible 12 months. Thank you for every single person in this room. We could spend hours just showing pictures and stories but all the, the cool things that are happening in our various uh, ministries that, we, that we're a part of. 
Thank you that, um, frankly, when every day tons of churches are closing their doors, that you saw fit to be gracious with us and give us more and be generous with us. Help us, as always, to stay focused on you, your son, the cross, and um, help us to see our life mission as uh, advancing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, a couple months ago, or last week actually, I introduced you to two fictional biblical, Kevin's laughing at me because I said a couple months, it's just a baby. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I had a baby a few weeks ago. He sleeps great except on Saturday nights. Um, it's, it's bizarre. It's just nonstop Saturday night, really bad. I think he knows there's something weird going on. Um, but last week I introduced you to two fictional um, characters, and I asked you to put like your imagination cap on and go back 2,000 years to the first century and picture a father and son. The father's name is Moshe, and the son's name is Michael. And those are two Jewish names. In English, they're Moses and Michael. But if you will, Go back 2,000 years ago and picture a father and his teenage son, Moshe and Michael, and the father begins to tell his son the story of their people. And the father says, son, in the beginning, God created the world, and it was beautiful, it was incredible, it was good, it was so good, and he put people, human beings, as his image bearers into the good creation. And the image bearers were supposed to do God's will on earth as he does in heaven. In other words, son, humanity was supposed to reflect the glory and goodness of God. And when human beings do this, the world remains good and beautiful. God was a painter and earth was his canvas. And the earth was in shalom, perfect harmony. It was like a finely tuned instrument. But you know how the story goes, son. Human beings, we rebelled. We wanted to be our own God. We wanted to execute our own will. And so sin entered God's good creation and wreaked havoc upon the goodness. But God had a rescue plan, a way to reverse the curse, a way to take away the thorns and the thistles, a way to take away the pain and the misery. He chose our father, Abraham, and he promised Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars and that he would give our people a land, a country, a capital, a city, but most importantly, that through us, son, God was going to bless the entire earth. All the families of the earth would be blessed through our people. After he made those promises to his son, he gave us the land. He gave us the city. He gave us his law. He was like a faithful husband and we were his bride. We didn't like his law and so we disobeyed. And like an unfaithful bride, we sought off other lovers. But God kept sending prophets our way to remind us of his love, to remind us that it's never too late to turn back to him. But we in our stubbornness can sin, continue to rebel and continue to want to make our own rules and own laws. And eventually we took God out of the picture. And finally, God had enough. He took away our land. He took away our temple. He took away our city, the capital, Jerusalem, meant teaching of shalom. We, the people who were supposed to teach the world what it's like to live in shalom with God, became a part of the problem. So God took it all away, and he handed us over 
to oppressive dictators and tyrants. At this point, the son interrupts the story and says, Dad, I've heard this story a thousand times, but if you insist that God is so good, why has he let our people suffer for so long? And almost with a tear in his eye, the father says, Son, it's been 400 years since God has last spoken through a prophet. It's been 400 years since God has used a prophet to write sacred, holy scripture. And it's been close to 500 years since a king has sat on the throne in Israel, in our capital, Jerusalem. But make no mistake about it, son. In this silence and in this drought, God has not abandoned or forsaken his people. His mercies are new every morning. And we need to wait for our king to come again. Now, with that story in the back of your mind, the biographical accounts of Jesus, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, introduce you to Jesus, a young Jewish man who's going around being called a rabbi, a teacher. But he's saying things like this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now think about that story. That's the backdrop. 400 years of silence, 500 years without a king. And all of a sudden, there's this kind of Messiah figure, a young man named Jesus saying, now is the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Now what you need to know is that Jesus isn't the first guy to step on the scene in the first century world to claim these types of things. In fact, it happens several times, dozens of times. Some new leader, young man would rise up and he'd say, I'm going to be the savior. I'm going to be the one to deliver Israel. I'm going to be the one to kick out the oppressive Romans. I'm the Messiah. And sometimes they get one or two followers. Sometimes they get thousands of followers. But sooner or later, Rome found out and they squashed the revolt and they killed the would-be Messiah. And every single time that happened, the movement would die because there's no way Messiah was supposed to come and die. There was no way the savior, the king was going to come and die. That by very definition meant, I guess he wasn't the king. I guess he wasn't the Messiah. Now, picture that father and son. As they have this backdrop in their mind and they're kind of living in Israel in the first century, um, the, the question isn't, is Jesus claiming to be some Messiah figure? Is he claiming to be God's representative? They probably assumed that he thought he was because they had seen other people do that. The question of the day was, whose side is he on? And this is something that's, that's hard to get when you're reading the gospel accounts, but it's an important question. Whose side is he on? See, in the first century world, there was four kind of major camps or schools of thought. There was Zealots, Essenes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. Let me help you kind of make sense of this. Um, in our culture, politically, we have two major parties. There's some other smaller ones that um, are in the mix, but for the most part, every year, come election time, there's two major parties. There's Republicans and there's Democrats. Now, sometimes it's, it's not just as black and white because some of you might be like 90% conservative, but there's 10% of the issues you would consider yourself liberal or 90% or of the time you vote Democrat, but 10% of the time you vote Republican. So it's not as clean and black and white and kind of easy, but for the most part, there's two categories. But in American life, our political 
life is completely separated from philosophy and theology. Like if you're a Democrat or Republican, that doesn't necessarily tell you what you believe about God. You have to ask more questions. In first century Israel, and for the majority of human history, political life, social life, theological life, philosophical life, they were not distinct categories. So these four camps all represented different political, social, and theological views. Sometimes a Messiah would align himself with one of these, these groups. Sometimes he'd align himself with another group. So the question again is, Jesus is claiming the kingdom of God is at hand, whose side is he on? So what I'd like to do is describe four of these groups for you and then kind of take you down an imaginary journey as if the, the father and son were encountering the teachings of Jesus and trying to figure out which camp to put him in. Is he a zealot? Is he in a scene? Is he a Sadducee or a Pharisee? So first illustration. The sword. When you think of a zealot, I want you to have this symbolic representation in your mind. Zealots believe that they need to be faithful unto God. And when Israel is faithful unto God, then he is going to deliver them himself or he will send the Messiah, the Savior, the King to vindicate Israel and destroy her enemies. Now the key to proving yourself faithful unto God is by having the courage to take up sword and do God's will. So the zealots would look back into the Old Testament and they would see stories of like Elijah. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What does Elijah do to the prophets? He kills them. Then their favorite guy, an obscure character in the Bible, is a guy named Phineas. Anyone, raise your hand if you know who Phineas is. Great, a few of you. Phineas is a guy in the Old Testament who sees um, false teaching, false doctrine occurring in the land, and then in a holy, sacred moment, he becomes aware that there's a man engaged in kind of sexual activity with a Moabite pagan and all the doctrines and religious practices that go along with it. So the Bible actually records that Phineas takes a spear and while they're having sex, stabs, stabs both of them in one shot and kills them both. The zealots would go, that's what faithfulness looks like. That is when men aren't afraid to take up sword and do God's work. So when you think of a zealot, think of a sword. There's another group called the Essenes. When you think of the Essenes, I want you to think of a water basin and the washing of hands. Why is that? Because this Essenes lived out for the most part in desert communities. They lived celibate lifestyles and were obsessed with moral and ritual cleanliness. What I mean by that is they ate very little, they lived in poverty, they lived a celibate lifestyle out in the desert, they prayed all day, they took four or five baths a day because for them, God would vindicate Israel when they would show themselves pure and willing to give up everything this life has to offer to wait in anticipation for the king. So think Essenes, think ritual, water rituals, think poverty, think celibacy, think living out in the desert, waiting for Messiah to come. 
The third category, Sadducees. Many of you have heard that word because the Sadducees and Pharisees are the two groups that are mentioned most in the New Testament. The Sadducees are unique. It's, this is very difficult for us to understand. The Sadducees were extremely religious. They believed in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, but they did not believe in angels, demons, or the afterlife. All there was was the now. So they lived their life trying to obey the Old Testament, but they kind of had this philosophical presupposition, uh, assumption that, look, if this life is all I have, I don't want to be like a zealot and go die for it. I want to live my life to the fullest. I want to live to be an old man. I want to see my grandkids. Um, so we're going to obey God, but we're also going to do our best to keep the peace. And that oftentimes meant compromise with Rome. So the poor, the peasants, the masses, do you think they liked the Pharisees? No, because they are the priest who are in the temple who are compromising with Rome just to keep the status quo going, just to keep the peace. So when you think Sadducees, I have a symbol for you. Anyone take a guess at what it is? Peace. Little hippie peace in, the, peace in the Middle East type thing. When you think Sadducee, think peace, compromise. We don't want no trouble here. Lastly, there was the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the Old Testament, but they, like most Jews of the time and Christians, believed in angels, demons, heaven and hell, the afterlife, resurrection. They believed in all of those things, but they had this belief that Israel was suffering because Israel had sinned and rebelled against God. Now that's true, but then the next thing they would say is, God will forgive us when we clean up our act. God will finally come save, deliver us, and free us from Roman oppression when we get our act together. And what I mean by that is there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. The Pharisees obsessed with obeying those laws. They obsessed so much that the Pharisee, in addition to those 613 laws, created thousands of other rules, laws, regulations, and ordinance in order to properly understand those 613 laws. I'll give you an example says, you should not work on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Well, if you're obsessed with not working on the Sabbath, what's your first question? D can someone define work? What does work mean? So they would say, hmm, well, work means if you take more than 400 steps on the Sabbath, you have now um, stopped your resting and you are now breaking the Sabbath. And so that would become a law in the Pharisaic school of thought. But then other people, but other people would come along and say, that's not enough. What happens, I'm not making this up, if I ride a donkey for those 400 steps and then I only walk 100? Some Pharisees in some school of thought would say, that's okay. You're not working because the animal is working. But if you're a good student of the Old Testament, you know that the animals are supposed to rest as well. You see how this goes on and on and on and on? So when you think of Pharisees, I want you to think of the Torah, the law, the 613 rules 
in the Old Testament, but then in addition to those, think of a big giant book that then clarifies all of those 613 laws. And the Pharisees said, when we do that, when we're holy and we are righteous and we remove these wicked sinners from around us, then God will deliver us. He will, in the 400 years of silence, he will put a king on the throne in Israel. So, review, zealots, the sword, get up and fight. The Essenes, escape, go out in the desert, ritual cleanliness, moral cleanliness, and prove to God that you're waiting for him and all you need is him. The Sadducees, peace, man. I want to obey, I want to be a good Jew, but if that's going to cause problems with Rome, we'll, we'll go with the flow. Pharisees, an obsession with God's law, which is kind of interesting, by the way, because do you see how dangerous that is? They were technically just wanting to study God's law and obey it, but somehow, even that desire was perverted into something it shouldn't have been. Okay, so now, picture the father and son. Uh, First century, they hear that this Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, and they're excited. They're like, could this be, could this be God's deliverer? Could this be the king? And the dad would say, hey, hold on, son. I mean, we saw what happened to the last 12 guys. It didn't end well for them. Uh, And more importantly, we need to find out what type of Messiah is he? Whose side is he on? Now, word in that day was going around that Jesus said something along the lines of, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to turn son and daughter against mother and father. Jesus spoke those words. So if you heard Jesus speak those words, if you're that father and son and you're gonna go see Jesus, what do you think your first inclination might be? Jesus is a zealot. He is saying he's bringing God's kingdom and he is saying that he didn't come to bring peace, he came to bring a sword. That is like the very job description of a zealot. So the father and son go, he's a zealot. Let's just go make sure and let's see if, uh, if all these stories about him doing miracles and casting out demons are true because if he does that, then maybe we'll take up the cause. But then when the, the father and son are listening to Jesus teach, they hear him say this, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Whatever Jesus is, after you read that verse, he's not a zealot. A zealot gets slapped, they want to stab. A zealot wants to kill their enemies. They want to destroy their enemies. Jesus is saying, oh no, don't do that. When people hate you, bless them. When people curse, persecute you, pray not against them, but pray for them. So whatever this Jesus is, whatever this young man is about, he clearly can't be a zealot because a zealot wants to kill their enemies, not bless them. So then, picture the son. Father, he's not a zealot. Um, I've heard that he actually went into the desert for some time and spent some days with a guy named John the Baptist 
who is this crazy celibate kind of poverty-stricken prophet guy who's baptizing people in the River Jordan. Jesus must be in a scene because he went to an Essene named John the Baptist. He's about ritual cleanliness, baptism, purification rituals. But then the father and son follow Jesus and they, they follow this encounter. A group of priests asked Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, the Essenes were obsessed about ritual cleanliness, taking baths four, five, six, seven times a day. Jesus and his disciples aren't even washing their hands before they eat. Some of you people are going to abuse that Bible verse. So when Jesus is confronted, he's, he's not even just saying, oh, worry about ritualistic cleanliness. He, he's not even worried about washing his hands, let alone his body. So whatever that baptism thing was about, it wasn't in a scene type of baptism. So then you're going, okay, there's two categories left. He's probably a Sadducee because he hasn't caused any ruckus yet. No one's trying to kill him yet. Um, He's probably just going with the flow, teaching the Bible, and there's this is much to do about nothing. But then you hear Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Which if you were thinking he was a Sadducee, this completely eliminates him from that category as well because he's saying that there's not only an afterlife, but there's consequences based upon the life lived in the present. And the Sadducees' whole philosophy was built around the idea that there is no afterlife. Go with the flow, compromise, live a good life here and now. But Jesus seems to say, what you do in the present, in the now, has infinite implications for the future and is of utmost importance. Lord, Lord, Not everyone who says to me this will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he's not a zealot, he's not an Essene, he's not a Sadducee. One category left, a Pharisee. And at this point, if you were reading the Gospels, you would be just in the same, you'd be in the same position as the Father and Son. Oh, Jesus is clearly a Pharisee because he loves the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament. Jesus is observed to be keeping all the Old Testament laws. And in fact, Jesus says something along the lines of, make no mistake about it, I did not come to abolish the law. I have came to fulfill it. So he's a Pharisee. He's clearly holy. He's he's not sinning. He's trying to do all the things that God wants him to do. He's a Pharisee. The father and son follow Jesus around the city and they sneak in behind a house and watch him as he's eating dinner in a private home. And as he reclined at a table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees' theological system was built upon the idea that Israel needs to clean up their act and they can do it in and of themselves. And when they do that, then God will deliver them. But Jesus is saying, I came because you guys can't fix yourself. 
I didn't come to call righteous people who got it all together. I came to the sinner who's trapped and in desperate need of a savior. And if there was any doubt as the father and son kind of walk along or as you read the gospels to make sure that Jesus isn't kind of pro-Pharisee, Matthew 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow others to go in. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Jesus' words are clear at this point, right? Most Christians live their whole life, they never know Jesus talk like that. See, there's four major categories in the first century world. And everyone wants to know, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Who is this young preacher who's teaching with authority, who's casting out demons, who's doing the miraculous, healing the sick, feeding the poor? Who is this guy? What is he about? Whose side is he on? But time and time again, Jesus refuses to allow himself to be put in any of the categories or boxes of his day. He refuses. The second you think he might be a zealot, he proves you wrong. The second you think he might be a Pharisee, he flips the coin. He refuses to submit himself to a category of the day. Now, as that father and son walk with Jesus and they continue walking with him, they start to hear Jesus say a lot of other things. Things like this. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection. And at this point, they have to be thinking, this guy just doesn't think he's like a savior or a messiah. This guy is claiming to be things that only God can claim. So maybe, like the prophet said, God would not only send us a messiah, but God himself would come in person to deliver his people. I am the bread of life. Think about these statements. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection. But here's the thing. As soon as people start thinking, this might be the true Messiah. He teaches with authority. He casts out demons. He gives sight to the blind. He feeds the hungry, the needy. He obeys the law perfectly and completely. The second people start thinking in big terms, this is God himself coming to save his people. Jesus starts saying things like this. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, whatever you think about Messiah, whatever you think about God, you know that when Messiah or God comes to earth, he's not coming to serve and he's not coming to die. What kind of hero dies? What kind of hero serves? What kind of hero and deliverer prays for and blesses his enemies? And Jesus says even more startling things like this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed. 
So again, whatever you think about God in the first century, whatever you think about the Messiah, the deliverer, the savior in the first century, you did not think he would come to die. You did not think he would come to serve. And most importantly, there's no way he's coming to suffer. What kind of mission is that? It's nonsense. It's absurd. I'm coming to save the people. And in doing that, I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to serve people. And then they're going to kill me. It's a horrible movie. And then Jesus keeps pushing. He starts saying, oh, oh, you want to be great? Then you must become a servant. Who wants that? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Nobody wants to do that. People loved Jesus when they thought he was on their side. But when he refused to take a side when he refused to align himself with the categories and boxes of the day, and then when he refused to exert power in the way that most people use power, the tides of popular opinion quickly change. Who wants that guy as a king? Who wants that kind of God? I mean, you might be telling yourself, oh, I do, I love to be a servant. No, you don't. You know, people always, I run into people so many times, they go, oh, it's better to give than to receive. I love to give. It it, it just warms my heart. You know what Jesus would say? He go, prove it. And when you started to try to prove it, he would say, Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Prove it. Do you really think that? Go sell all you have, give it to the poor and follow me. See, when Jesus looks a lot like you, when he looks like a first century zealot, when he looks like a second century Pharisee, you love Jesus. But when God is not the God humanity wants, the shouts of praise will always continue to go from praise to shouts of condemnation. And the same people who were saying, this is it. He is healing. He's feeding the poor. He's casting out demons. This is Messiah. Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Those very voices changed their tone from praise to crucify this man. Kill him. Because no one wants this God. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us want to fall You want to be my follower? You're going to suffer. You must learn to be a humble servant. You must learn what it's like to be last. No one goes, that sounds great. How do I sign up for that? You're the best king there ever was. I've always wanted to suffer. No one wants that. So the tides of popular opinion turn against Jesus and they hand him over to Roman authorities. By the way, the one time that all humanity was united, Jews, Gentiles, multiple ethnicities, was not in some parade of unity. It was when they both raised their hands and crucified the Son of God. That's when humanity was most united. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Those are haunting words. 
the king had finally come to his people. And you have a, a Roman leader kind of in a mocking way saying, here's your king. And they go, no, 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 no. We have no king. But Caesar. Do you remember the last time the people of Israel wanted an earthly king? It starts way back in the Old Testament. They wanted a guy named Saul to be their king. But it was a way of saying, oh God, you are our king, but we don't want you we want him. And when Jesus is standing, battered, beaten, bruised, flogged, and presented as king of kings and lord of lords, people say, we don't want him. Give us Caesar. No one wants a flogged, tortured servant king. 2,000 years ago, Jesus wouldn't fit into any, any of the boxes or the categories of the day. And when people found out, oh, this Jesus is in a first century zealot, we don't like him. What you need to know, and this is the point of everything here, is all of us, every single culture, every single people group, no matter what time period you're in, we all have blind spots. And ultimately, whether we know it or not, we are always trying to conform God to our image rather than allow ourselves to be conformed to his image. We will always try to make Jesus look, talk, and be like us. We'll always try to make Jesus um, approve of everything in our lifestyle. We want a 21st century American Jesus who supports everything that we like, who, who agrees with all of our stances on all of the issues, and he's made in our image. And it's not just us, it's every culture, it's every people. This goes back to Adam and Eve. They said, we want to be God. We want to have authority. We want our will. But Jesus, then and now, refuses to fit into any of the categories or boxes that we present him in. He's not a zealot. He's not a Pharisee. He's not an American. He's king. He doesn't run a democracy. He runs a monarchy. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you spend your life tearing down those blind spots. You say, I want this, I want that, but Jesus, you're king and I want you above it all, so speak into me and change me. Now when you do that, and for those of you who have done that, and who are doing that, you know it's a, it is a painful process sometimes. Because Jesus doesn't come along and say, oh, you're so, you're so awesome, you're, you're my homeboy, don't change anything. You're, li listen to our culture, listen to our culture. Our culture says, you're perfect how you are. Don't change anything about yourself. Have that philosophy and get married and see how that works out for you. Have that philosophy and try to hold a job and see how that works for you. Jesus says, oh, I love you. You know how much I love you? Even though your sin screamed crucify louder than the mob 2,000 years ago, I still died for you and there's nothing in heaven or hell that can separate you from my love. But son, my daughter, you got some work to do. And this is the beauty of the Bible.
This is, is unchanged. I know, I know every so often like the History Channel will say, how the Bible's been changed in the last 2000. It's, it's nonsense, it really is. Um, most scholars know better than that. What you have in the Gospels are the teachings of Jesus, unchanged for 2,000 years. They refuse to submit to our culture. They refuse to submit to our interpretations. They just speak the authoritative words of Jesus. And it's your job as a Christian to do your best to understand them and put them into practice in your life. And if you can read this book and never be challenged or convicted or, or have this kind of gut feeling that, wow, there's some things in me that need to change, you're not reading it right. You're just not. I mean, if you've been a Christian a long time, you know there's, there's like, you read something. Oh, man, I don't want to do that. As Christians, we're, we're supposed to be the most generous people on the face of the earth with, with our money. Who wants to do that? I want an iPad Pro. I want an Apple Pencil. That's awesome. I want PlayStation 4. I want to order lobster and not hot dogs. Who wants, to, who wants to be a servant? Who wants to clean toilets? Who wants to do that? Nobody. But here's the paradox of Christianity. In becoming last, you shall be exalted. In humbling yourself, you will find the king's approval. In giving up your life, you will find your life. It is our job as Christians to take these words seriously and allow them to change us from the inside out. And that is a hard, long, lifelong process. We're going to take communion and, and sing another closing song um, in worship. But this is, this is the main point of it all. I don't want you just to know a history lesson. Oh, zealots, Essenes, Pharisees. I want you to know that that's, that's all of our story. We always try to, to fit Jesus into what we want. We conform God into our image rather than allowing him to conform, ours, conform our image to his. When you read the Bible, don't be like the many, many Christians who pick and choose. There used to be, I don't want to do this because this is a nice Bible. But there, there was an illustration where you'd be reading verses in the Bible and then when there was one that you didn't like, you just rip out that page and throw it away. And pretty soon you have a Bible with like five pages. That's all the stuff you'd say, God loves me. Yes, that's true. But the, the part where he said, be holy for I am holy, I don't like that one. Get rid of it. So my challenge for you, this, this kind of December, this message, and where we're at in the series of Thorns and Crowns, when you read the life and teachings of Jesus, are you allowing them to penetrate to your heart? And, and the, the good news is, is the more and more you do that, the more you have a desire to do what's right. It's bizarre, and I've seen Christians who have been faithful for like 40 or 50 years, and over the, that time, something in them begins to change. It's like, no, I actually think this guy really likes to be generous. He truly is given more happiness by giving than receiving. Because when your image is changed and it's conformed to the image of God, you become more like him in your characteristics and attributes. You become a... a, a an outwardly focused person. And I can't tell you, as a pastor, how many times I've walked in on somebody secretly doing a humble lack, secretly clean. I mean, just whack stuff happens at a church. It's like, oh, someone was super sick and there's, there's barf all over the place. 
And you can either say, that's someone else's job, or you can immediately go, oh, I'll do that. And it's my joy. Because before my Savior died, he was washing feet, and I want to be like him. And you see people transformed over years. So when you read the Bible, when you read the teachings of Jesus, allow it to transform you from the inside out. Um, Communion is a way of, of remembering back to what Jesus did, to what, what he did for us on our behalf. He was, was crucified and killed. His own people asked for it, and again, our sins asked for it as well. So we remember not only that he died and suffered, but we remember that he was triumphant. He was the hero. He was the victor. He was the champion. He defeated Satan, sin, and death, rose victoriously, and gave us a new way to live, a new way to be human, a new way to interact with his world. And he gave us a mission to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we do that faithfully in submission to a king until he returns. Those are the two symbols of communion, the past and the future. The past, the crucifixion, the future, the return of the king. So we're going to do this together. The bread represents the uh, body of Christ that was broken on your behalf. The son of man came to suffer, not to be served, but to serve. Take this in remembrance of him and that act. The cup represents the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf. What the world wanted was a king who would spill the blood of their enemies. This God dies on a cross for his and with some of his last words he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May you drink the cup knowing you have received forgiveness. Father God, we thank you for this gathering. I thank you that we live in a, in, a, in a place right now where we can come together and freely worship you. May we not waste these minutes. May we exalt the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who refuses to submit himself to our categories, the one who conforms our image to his. And we pray in that name, the only name that I know that can save, the name of Jesus. Amen.